Colossians chapter 3 is where we find ourselves this morning. If you can't see me in the back, I'm here. Our sermon series is called The Supremacy and Sufficiency of Christ. The Apostle Paul has been emphasizing this over and over again throughout the book that that people and and believers, I should say, are, are complete in Christ. Chapter 1, after a brief introduction of his authorship and his authority and thankfulness and prayer to God, he focuses immediately toward the end of chapter 1 on the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ. In chapter 2, we saw that he he used this platform of who Christ is and what Christ has done to, to, to warn the church of Colossae against these false teachers, against the false teaching that had infiltrated the church. And it is actually his teaching on who Christ is and what all that Christ is, the fullness of Christ, the, the, the fullness of deity dwelling in Christ, really was a, a platform, was really the foundation of his warning to the church. And, and Paul, interesting, from chapter 2, uh, before we get to chapter 3, he moves from this theological position, uh, he's declaring the, the deity of Christ, the sovereignty, sufficiency, and, and, and really the supremacy and exclusivity of Christ to more of a polemic argument. We've seen that. He's, he, is, he is arguing against the human philosophy. We saw that. Legalism, asceticism, and, and false mysticism that was infiltrating the church that were undermining the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ and the truth about who he is. And it says those things can't change you. Those things can't forgive you. Those things can't give you life. And therefore, don't let others who judge you try to control you by calling uh, you to follow legalism. Don't let those others disqualify you by insisting that you need something more than Jesus, more than the gospel to know God, to know God fully, to know God rightly, to experience God, to know salvation, to know redemption. Don't let them do that. And then last week in chapter 3, Paul begins this movement from this, this theological, this, this polemic argument to more of a positive outcome. This, what does it look like to really live out this truth of the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ? Always remember, good and right understanding of God. We call it theology. Don't be afraid of that word. A good and right understanding of God will bring about a good and healthy walk with God. Theology, Paul writes, then practicality. We talked about this last week. Indicative, certainties, declaration of who Christ is, who you are in the gospel, his grace, his mercy. Then comes the imperatives, follow these commands. The other way around is legalism. This is the gospel, the truth of the grace, the love, the mercy, the acceptance of who we are in Christ because what Christ has accomplished in our stead. Therefore, we should respond with gratitude and love and thanksgiving and walk with Jesus following his commands. So that's where we're at. Chapter 3, I want to read verses 1 through 11, put in context, but we're studying really uh, chapter uh, 3, verse 5 through 11. But let me read to you God's holy word, inspired, authoritative, inherent word from God. Chapter 3 of Colossians, verses 1 through 11, reading from the ESV. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry. 
On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Verse 11. Here there is not a Greek, there's not Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, uh, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. Verses 1 through 4 really is a transition, as I said, from theology, polemic argument, to the imperatives, how we ought to walk. If Christ is God as he is, and he is sufficient, and he is supreme, and in him are all the fullness of deity and all the knowledge and wisdom we need, if our sins have been nailed to the cross and we are dead with Christ and raised with Christ, then we are dead to the things of this world and risen with him to this new status, this new life, this, this new creation that's following and running after and seeking after the heavenly Realm, the heavenly world. You see that in chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. I, th- I picked up this outline. I think it was from Phil Rankin, if I'm, my memory, I mentioned it last week. You see in verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 1, that this, this new life, this, this, this new creation in Christ redirects our pursuits. We've been raised with Christ. That's desire. We're to desire and treasure Christ who is worshipped, who is seated at the right hand of the Father. It changes our pursuits. Meaning that Christ is now reigning and ruling at the right hand of the Father. He has sat down, we talked about this last week, his all-sufficient, uh, all once-and-for-all sacrifice on the cross gives him the only one, the high priest, that can actually sit after he has given himself as a sacrifice. And that reorients our hearts. We have a new affection toward Christ. He reshapes our pursuits. He reshapes our perspective. It has to do with renewing our minds. Look at verse 2. Set your minds on things above. I'm not trying to escape the material world, but we're focusing on Christ as we live in this world. Pursuits. He redirects our pursuits. He reshapes our perspective. And then he re- redefines our purposes. That's how we ended last week. We acknowledge, look at verse 3. We've died. That's our past. We've died with Christ. Our life now is hidden. That's today. We're hidden in Christ. We're protected. We're provided for in Christ. When Christ, who is your life, appears, verse 4, that's the future, then you will also appear with him in glory. So meanwhile, we're here, we're living as citizens, we're hidden, we're protected in Christ, and we are to live as citizens of heaven, but also we are to wait for his coming. As we wait, we are to witness. We, that's how we really ended last week, about witnessing. We're strengthened in the hope of the gospel. We're looking forward to the return of Christ. And all these things help us to motivate us to be ambassadors for Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.20. Calling on people to respond to the gospel. That's the mission of God. That's the mission of the church. That's the mission of God's people who is the church. Now Paul gets into now some real practical stuff. Three things. What to put to death. What to put away and what to put on. What to put to death, what to put away, and what to put on, as we pick up in verse 5. Paul lays out this long list, (laughs) a long list of things we are to put to death. But 
something really important I want you to see. The ESV picks it up, but not as good as some of the other translations, New American Standard. I think does a really good job if you have an NAS. It says this in verse 5. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead. The Apostle Paul has already stated very clearly that God is doing the work. That's why we are to consider members of your body, earthly body as already dead. We already saw in chapter 1 that it was God who delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. We saw in chapter 1 verse 20 that Christ reconciled sinners to himself through the blood of his cross. Believers are recipients of the work of Jesus, his death, his burial, his resurrection. So what he's saying, the call for us to put to death what is earthly in you has to be and must be understood that we are able to do so because of what Christ has already done. The command to put to death here in verse 5 is based on what believers have already been saved from, what have already been rescued from, have already died to. That's the point. That's why he says in the NAS, picks it up, he says, consider the fact that you are already dead. So, so, Paul, what you're saying to us is that we are dead to the worldly things. We are dead, and we'll see what, there's another term with the flesh, we'll see that in a minute. But we're, we're dead to these things. So, Paul, why are you telling us, if we're dead to these things, that we ought to put these things to death? Which one is it? We're dead. We're dead. Because Paul understands the importance of recognizing as long as we believers in Christ are still alive on earth, our position and our progress will never completely fully meet. In other words, our status, our state is dead, but our condition as believers is ongoing. It's called sanctification. Growing in likeness, dealing with sin, repenting and trusting in God, relishing and reminding ourselves of the gospel regularly. You see, in Christ we are positionally perfect. Without sin, God sees us through the blood of his son. We are justified once and for all. The old self is dead and buried with Christ. But our progressive, our ongoing character towards sanctification is also a reality that we face every day. Paul taught it in all over the place with Philippians 1. He taught it here in verse 10. Hendricks, the commentary, says this, The old life is still of the earth as well as on the earth. That's the old life. But there is no reason for despair. The very presence of the new life, the life in Christ, enables believers progressively to put to death the members that are upon the earth. End quote. What does it mean to put to death the flesh, the worldly passions, to put to death means that we recognize that the power of sin has been broken. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 6. You see it very clearly. We know that our old self was crucified with Christ in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. There's the key. Chapter 6, verse 11 of Romans. So you also must consider yourself dead to sin, saying the same thing in Colossians, and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, 
since we've died and we've raised with Christ. Therefore, let not sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. So you see, Paul is saying, there's these evil passions with you, but don't let it reign because you have died with Christ. So put to death the deeds of the flesh, the, the worldly passions. So the penalty of sin has been paid. Jesus paid it all. We love to sing that song. The penalty for our sin has been paid. The power of sin has been broken in our life so that now we can respond and say, yes, God. But the presence of sin will not be fully eradicated until we get our glorious, resurrected, immortal bodies when that day comes in the end. Until then, we are to appropriate and to recognize that we are dead to sin. Died with Christ. Power has been broken. And this process that we're going through, we'll see here in chapter uh, 3, verse 5. I'm going to spend most of my time on part 1 because I have to lay this out. The process we're going through is called sanctification, where we're learning to lean on the Spirit, put the deeds of the body to death, and we're growing and we're learning, we're repenting of sin, we're putting the deeds that are sinful to death, that part of us that wants to live independently of God. If you read Romans chapter 7, you know that Paul knows this firsthand. It's a great passage of Scripture. And you just see the heartbeat of Paul. You see this genuine transparency and honesty of the apostle. Romans 7. This is the apostle writing this. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. Sound familiar? He calls it sin that dwells within me. For I delight, he says, in the law of God, in my inner being. There is that new birth, that new life. But I see another member, another law waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. There's a battle going on. Wretched man that I am, he, 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 he just blurts it out. Who's going to deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So, he says, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, we're going to talk about what that means, I serve the law of sin. And Paul understood Paul understood, we need to understand that we are a work in progress. Some of us need to hear that, because some of us are way too hard on ourselves. And maybe some of us need to awaken to the reality that repentance and acknowledgement of sin is part of the process. Maybe we don't repent, repent enough. Let the Holy Spirit decide that for you. If you're a believer, you have new life. The Holy Spirit has applied salvation. You, he opened your eyes to see the beauty and the glory of Christ. You repented of sin. You believed. You're spiritually alive. And if you're here this morning and you're breathing, and I hope everyone here is breathing, we're still prone to temptation. We know that. We're still prone to temptation. One of the things that Paul uses, uh, he uses different terms, but kind of meaning the same thing. Worldly passion, uh, we see what's earthly in you, earthly human nature, uh, or the flesh, if you have an ESV or a New American Standard flesh, is the word sarx, it's in the Greek. It could mean different things. It could mean the physical body, I don't want to get into everything it means, but one of the ways the word sarx, flesh, is all, what it means in some contexts is that part of us, sarx, that part of us that wants to still rebel against God. That part of us still wants to be our own God, do our own thing, and not say yes to Jesus. Do things that we're not supposed to do, and not do things we're supposed to do. Now, I hope all of y'all with me, like, yeah, that happens, right? That's the, that's the flesh. 
And what it takes is a deliberate decision daily uh, to, to eradicate those things that, that, that draw us in to do things that we're not supposed to do. Now, very, very important as we talk about the flesh. If you want to jot this down. Romans chapter 8, verse 13. Okay. Flesh, the part of us that does not want to do what God wants to do, that part of us that still wants to be our own God, our own Savior. Romans chapter 8, verse 13 says this. This is such a key verse, family. Romans chapter 8, verse 13. If, Paul writing, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. If, if your life is characterized and you're running to, enjoying and loving things of the flesh, things that are rebellion against God, things that want to be your own God and Savior, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Catch that? Very important. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. That's the reliance upon the Holy Spirit. That's, that's the reality that you just can't say, I'm not doing this anymore. You will. I will. You have to rely upon the Spirit's power. We have died with Christ and therefore we are not to live as we have lived before. We are to, by the Spirit, put the deeds of the flesh that rebellious part of us, to death, okay? Following with me? Okay. Let's look at this list. What a list. <laughs> a lot to do with sexual immorality. Actually, all of it really tied into the very first part of this list. Put to death, therefore, sexual immorality. That kind of opens the door and everything flows from that. It's the word porneia in the Greek. You know where we get the word pornography from? There it is. It's, it's a junk drawer. Everybody have a junk drawer at home? Yeah, two of them. I probably have more than that. Yeah, we definitely have junk drawers. You, change, you know, you clean them out every 15 years. Pornay is like that junk drawer. It, 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 it's, it's everything that you could think of. So we're not going to go through the list of what sexual immorality means and all the different ways that man has perverted Sex, okay, we won't do that. But what we will do, make it really easy, is say that sexual intimacy is a gift of God. It's been given to us. It's not bad, it's not dirty. He invented it for us. But it can only be expressed through one man, one woman, covenant of marriage. Everything else is in that junk drawer. That's as simple as that, right? We recognize that our culture, some will say, oh my, are, are, are you kidding me? You're going back in the dinosaur ages, pastor, really? It was just as unbelievable then as it is today nothing's changed because the heart don't change all sexual activity outside of marriage between one and let me just be really clear biological gender male and one biological gender woman is sin everything outside of that is sin it's that simple and again God's truth doesn't change because of our culture and God's desires and God's will for our lives is for our good. It's not, it's not that God is trying to be a killjoy. It's God wants us to flourish. He knows how we flourish. He created us to flourish. And Paul wants to make it really clear. The next word we see is impurity. 
So unnatural sexual practice is really what makes someone unclean. You have sexual immorality, which is kind of a junk drawer, then a purity. It has to do with defilement. It has to do with, uh, it has a connotation of, of a filthy mind, a filthy uh, imagination. There's impurity, there's uncleanliness. Jesus said in Mark 7, what? It's not what goes in a man that defiles him. It's what comes out of the man that defiles him, right? Out of the heart of man comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality. There's that word again. Theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceitful, envy, slander, pride. We see the same list, really. Some of the same list there uh, that we see in Colossians. Jesus says, all these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Again, this is just as radical. Don't think, oh, everybody was clapping in Paul's culture. Not in Colossae they weren't. It's just as radical. Paul said, look, set your mind on things above, but if you set your mind on things in, that are impure, guess what's going to happen? It's going to go from impurity to sexual immorality. Next we have the word passion. It's the Greek word pathos. It's uncontrolled, illegitimate desire. Someone wrote, uh, someone wrote like an inward fire that is kindled in the heart. Lust, passion, it's about me, 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 self-gratification. No one's, no one's really concerned about you. I'm concerned about me, not the object of one I'm supposed to love. And he goes on, evil desires. Evil desires that just total disregard for God. Sinful human nature is bound by evil desires. I mean, that's, that's what, that, that, that's, this is, this is the road in which Paul has taken us down. Let me turn back there if I can Okay, that's the road he's taking us. you got sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and then he says covetousness. Uh, this ongoing longing for something that you can't have. Something you're placing supreme value on, yet you, you just can't seem to get it. And you've got to ask, why, why would Paul add covetousness, desiring something you can't have, to this list of sexual sins? Well, it, maybe it's obvious to you. When, 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 when sexual sins are acted out, when, when there's impure thoughts, when there's selfish and passions and evil passions and only for yourself, and you don't get what you are set out to get, what do you do in the end? You covet. But I want that. But I covet. You know, the 10th commandment of the Decalogue, the 10 commandments of, uh, that Moses gave us, number 10, anybody know what number 10 is? Covet your neighbor's house and your neighbor's wife. It goes from stealing, adultery, it comes from action, acts in, in, in the Decalogue, and then ends in 10 with motive. The impurity of motive. He ends in 10 and says covet it. You know why he does that? Because the coveting, the motive, brings us back to the first commandment. What's the first commandment? Have no other God beside me. Look at the text. Look at the text. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Idolatry. Violating the first commandment, have no God besides me. You see, every sin is essentially self-worship. When we run after these things, it's about getting what we want. What I want. And by ending with idolatry, I think what Paul wants us to see is with this list that all these things really stem from wanting to be our own Lord. I'm the sovereign one. You won't tell me what to do. 
And we don't accept God's word, his will, and his ways, and we aren't submitting to his lordship. Just what he called us to in chapter 2. To the lordship of Christ. You can't tell me what to do. And that's why verse 6 is so surreal. Look at verse 6. On account of these what? The wrath of God is coming. You, you want to do what you want to do. Those who think they could just simply violate God's moral law, God's sexual uh, uh, guidelines for us, and his law that he's written, without returning from their sins, are going to be held accountable on that day. Now, a lot of, a lot of uh, uh, that's why we do expository preaching. You've got to deal with this verse. This is a New Testament verse, by the way. For those who say, oh, yeah, God's just angry in the Old Testament. No, there's wrath in the New Testament. There's wrath. We have to talk about it. Wrath is not what, what many of us think. This, we've, maybe we've grown up with, with a parent or an uncle or a grandmother or, or a father that is wrathful. We're going to talk about that in a minute. Maybe they're this explosive, not knowing where it's coming from, and this angry, angry person with this explosion of wrath. That's not God's wrath. God's wrath is, and his anger is not short-tempered and irrational. These outbursts coming from nowhere. It's perfect. It is just. It is righteous. It is un unchanging displeasure against sin wrath of god is 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 the response of his holiness towards sin you say well well isn't god love yes yes of course god is love god is wrathful he's angry at sin god loves his creation and when his creation destroy one another abuse one another, devalue one another, murder one another, guess what? He gets mad, just like you do, when someone you love is hurt. And some would say, you know, how could a loving God, you know, how, how could God be wrathful if God is loving? And I would say, how could a loving God not be angry? Our love, many times, we've talked about this before, is connected to our anger. The more you love something, the more you get angry when it's hurt. And wrath here is going to be exposed, he says, because of our sexual sin. Not because we're just violating his laws, although we are. Because family, listen to this. God is good. God is gracious. God is kind. God is merciful. God knows more than you know. And he knows what's best for us for human flourishing. He knows. And he knows what sexual sin does to his creation and... We see that in 1 Corinthians 6. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexual immoral person sins against his own body. And Paul says in verse 7, listen, that's what some of you were. That's how some of you walked. That's how you all lived. That was characterized by your actions, by everything you did. That was your life, verse 7. In these you too walked once, in these you too once walked when you were living in them. Okay, family, now listen. It's not I'm walking in good deeds and God's happy. I'm walking in bad deeds. God's wrathful, wrathful, angry. Okay? And I'll tell you why. First Thessalonians says this. Paul gets a report from them. The kind of reception that they had among you, how the Thessalonians turned to God from idols to serve the living true God and wait for Jesus from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. See what he's saying? Paul is saying this, you have been saved by grace 
You have been saved by my mercy. You have been saved by the cross. There's nothing you have done. Mercy and grace have been poured out on you in the gospel. And therefore, because of God's grace, you don't walk that way anymore. And those who continue to walk that way, who reject the gospel, who turn their back on Christ, they have the wrath of God waiting on them. And if you're here today and you haven't trusted Christ, I implore you, out of love, turn to Jesus. He took the wrath in your place. He bore the penalty that you deserve. He himself lived the perfect life you could never live and died for your sins and rose from the dead and offers forgiveness to take what you deserve upon himself and he grants life to you. Turn from your sin and trust Christ. That's what Paul is saying. The expectation of Christ follows to put to death those things that the world does. And Paul's saying, you've already done that, and now you live in a different trajectory. That's what he's saying, so put them to death. Now, we'll go a little bit quicker. Verse 8, what to put away? But now, you put them all away. You walk that way, you're not living that way anymore. Now, you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. And chapter 9, uh, verse 9a, do not lie to one another. See what Paul's doing? He's saying, he's using this clothing metaphor. He's saying, well, I want you to, 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 to put on and put off. Put off these things and put on something else. We'll see that in verse 12 next week. Put on then as God's chosen people. He's saying, something to take off, something to put away, and something to put on. The first list we saw was sexual sin. This has to do with the sins of speech. Look at the very end of the, this list, obscene talk. No one has a problem with their mouth, do they? <laughs> Don't take this the wrong way, but growing up in an Italian home, it's been difficult. James in chapter 3. Your tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. No human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father. And with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Hmm. Anger. Growing inner bubbling anger. Hostility. And that turns to what? Wrath is what it says. Human anger boiling over. The Bible says be angry but sin not. There's a righteous anger. That's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about that sinful, wrathful, boiling over anger. Why do we get so angry? Can I suggest to you that your anger, my anger could possibly be because we have placed something in our lives that becomes something we absolutely have to have in order to feel good about ourselves, whether it's a reputation, whether it's good kids, whatever it may be. And when those things are taken from us, because we raise it to this prominent place, we get angry. You see, if I need from you to respect me, I need that because I feel worthwhile, I feel valued, I feel loved, I feel accepted as part of who I am and my identity. If I need that and you disrespect me, it's not just going to make me upset. It's going to make me angry. 
And a lot of times when we get angry at something, and I'm, t- I'm speaking from personal experience, a lot of times we get angry for something, we got to ask ourselves, what am I trying to get? And what part of me is not getting something that I think I need when Jesus is all I need? And you'd be surprised, driving in the car, trying to get to where you got to go, meeting a bunch of pastors, two little sweet ladies driving a car in front of me going four miles an hour. (laughs) I'm playing worship music, I'm singing, I'm doing everything I can to distract myself. But the truth is, I care about what other people think when I'm late. My wife would tell you, drive her crazy. There's nothing wrong with not being late. It's okay to be on time. It's okay to be respected. But when it becomes something that I need, when Jesus is all I need, he's supreme, he's sufficient, he in him, the fullness of God dwells in him, I have all the wisdom of knowledge. When that's, I could sit back and go, okay, I'm going to be late. But I care what Jesus thinks. And I'm secure in him. I'm full and complete in Christ. I'm unconditionally loved, secure and valued in Christ. That's the unchanging, objective reality of the love of God and the acceptance of God in the gospel. But when our idols are threatened, we are enraged. If we feel like our kids have to do certain things or become certain people in order to feel valued in love and they don't, guess what? We disintegrate. When my portfolio or my crowds of friends or, or, or a certain response from others, whether it's to be liked, in order to feel significant and in value and they turn on me, I'm destroyed. The level of our rage many times reveal our idols. Christ is saying, Paul is saying, Christ is supreme, Christ is sufficient. Therefore, take off that and put away the anger and the wrath. Rest in Christ. Next word is Malice. You know what malice, right? It's, it, it's, it's enjoying someone disintegrate. An attitude which plans evil and rejoices. I was thinking this week about Esther, the story of Esther, and, and how Mordecai um, was getting um, hung. And, 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 and Haman, the, the enemy, saw that the king was building this, this gallow for Mordecai, and, 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 and uh, it was just a thrill over it, just the demise of other people. Malice, slander, just destroying people talking smack about them, lies and gossips, trying to get back at them. Malice is conceived, slander will follow, and then at the end, obscene talk, foul and abusive speech. And then Paul ends it with, do not lie to each other. Listen, lying destroys trust. It's a sin against God, it's a sin against the church, it's a a sin against love. Barton writes, lying to others disrupts unity by destroying trust. It tears down relationships and may lead to serious conflict in the church. Lying can take place in words said as words as well as words left unsaid. Believers should not exaggerate statistics, pass on rumors or gossip or say things to build up their own images at others' expense. Instead, because they have stripped off the old self with its practices, they should be committed by telling the truth. Ananias and Sapphira, chapter 5, right? From the, the first church, or uh, the beginning church in, in Acts, lied. God doesn't want deception, we want hypocrisy. God wants what? Honesty. We want to build trust with one another. We want to be, uh, and you know what? Sometimes you and I will disagree on personal preferences. <laughs> right? We got 
just painted the ladies' room. It's getting, get, hopefully be done Friday, right? Hope, next week, hope, we hope so. Somebody's going to say, I don't like the color. <laughs> just being honest. We've done this before. I, this ain't my first rodeo. Okay, that's honest. And I'll honestly say, just walk in like that. Honest transparency, it is so needed in our culture. Recognize giving each other grace and gray areas and just being kind and transparent. Honesty and transparency, even if we don't agree, that must be in the heart of God's people. So, what to kill, what to put away, and finally what to put on. Verse 9b, see that you have put off the old self with this practice, have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Paul, again, is speaking of our identity. Previously said you put off the, the body of, uh, of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ in chapter 2 through the crucifixion. Now he's saying you're putting off the old self and you're putting on the new self. The new identity. Put off, put on. We'll see more about that next week. Again, Romans 8.13, if you're going to live according to the flesh, you're going to die. But by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Telling us to put off the old self, not by will, will, you know, human power, not by self-determinative will. The new self is done by the work of the Spirit. That don't mean we're not responsible. But it does mean, family, that we have to be dependent upon God. We have to be, rely upon the Spirit. Calvin writes this, The old man is whatever we bring from our mother's womb and whatever we are by nature, it is called the old man because we are first born from Adam and afterwards we are born again through Christ. That's the key. We're a new creation. And Paul says you need to dress in new garments. Put off the deeds of the flesh that were connected to your fallen nature that's in Adam and put on garments consistent with your new life in Christ. And Paul is saying that the, without, without this power of this new creation, there, there's no ability, there's no power to obey or, or to please God or to bear fruit. We saw that in chapter 1, if not by the power of the new life and the spirit that dwells within us. And listen, he's saying you, you once identified with Adam, now be identified with Christ. Get rid of those old things that belong to the old man and, the, and, to, to, and to Adam and put on the new Adam, the new Christ, verse 10, the new self. Being renewed in the image, look what it says, of its creator. Being renewed is actually, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, is in the passive form of the verb. In other words, it, it is something that God is doing. That's the passive. It, 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 is, it is pointing to the work of the Holy Spirit and what God is doing in the sanctifying process. That's the point. And, and this new work of God, this new creation of God, is through the knowledge of God. And, and really, that's what Paul has been fighting against. He's been fighting against the human philosophies, the asceticism, the mysticism, this extra knowledge. He said, no, 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 you're going to do the knowledge of your creator. Who is that? Jesus. He made that clear as well. He is the image of the visible God, chapter 1, chapter 3. Therefore, Paul is saying, listen... You're in Christ, you're full in Christ. Align yourself, your new life, with the position you have as being in Christ. I think it was um, Neil Anderson. It's not what you do that determines who you are. It's who you are that determines what you do. That could be life-changing for you this morning. 
That's what Paul's saying. Put on the new clothes. And what's so cool about this is Adam and Eve, you know the story, they were deceived through what? Deluded arguments, deceptive speech. They were taken captive. This is what all Paul is writing against. They were taken captive through empty deceit. And all of us have been falling for these same lies. And that's what the teachers were teaching. And the remedy is to put off the old Adam and, and being renewed in the image of the new Christ. The new Adam. What was lost in the fall is now gained through the gospel. Is gained through the gospel. And that's what's so cool, that God in Christ, when he saved us and redeemed us, and we're putting off the old and putting on the new, he's actually restoring and renewing us from where Adam was before the fall. Now, one of the things I want to mention, and we'll talk more about it next week, but if you have an NIV, the word sinful nature, sarks is the Greek word, uh, when it's talking about that part of us that uh, wants to live independently of God. I, I never really liked that translation, sinful nature, because what it could infer is that there's these two natures, two people, two identities battling for each other. You have the old man and the new man both inside of you. That's not what the Bible teaches. You're not two natures or you're not two identities fighting each other. You're either in Christ or you're in Adam. You're either, you've either been a slave to sin, where the power of sin is still in your life, or you're a slave to righteousness, Romans 6. You're either a new creation, old things have passed away, and behold, all things are new, or you're in the old creation, the old man, and in the old ways, and identifying with the old Adam. I'm not denying there's a flesh, there's a part of us that wants to rebel. I'm simply saying that as children, 1 John tells us we have the seed of God dwelling within us. We have a new nature. We have a new identity. Yes, we're prone to do those things. In fact, before you became a Christian, your nature, your sinful nature, your, your sarks, all it did was sin all day long. Your mind was corrupt, running after the things of, of, of sin. Your heart was corrupt. Your body was corrupt. And all you did was run after sin, after sin, after sin. There was no releasing you from that. But as believers in Christ, when the Holy Spirit comes and you're born again and you become a child of God through the gospel, your heart, your identity, your, your nature, you're a new creation in Christ. The problem we face is our mind has been so corrupt for so long it needs to be renewed. Our body has been running towards sin and running after the, the impulses and, the, and the, the, the worldly desires and the sinful desires that it needs to be brought into subjection to the Holy Spirit. That's what sanctification is. It's not growing in your identity. You are already new in Christ. You're already secure in Christ. It's the renewing of the mind and setting the body and the impulses of the body to the things of the Spirit. Does that make sense to everybody? Okay. All right, good. Verse 11 to close then. Here there is not a Greek, Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and is in all. So who's this, who's this new man? Who is this new woman? They're in Christ. There's no longer any distinction. Notice that. If we put to death the sinful earthly things, if we put away the filthy speech and the sinful desires, and we fully experience this amazing removal then of human barriers, 
That's what he's saying. The new self destroys religious and cultural barriers. Greek, Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised. The new self, the new man destroys the cultural barriers, barbarian, Scythian, social barriers, slave and free. What's really amazing about this, not only the barbarians and the Scythians, they were, they're one in Christ, right? They're the uncultured. One was worse than the other. But he says the slave and the free are one in Christ. Who brought this letter from Rome to Colossae? Do you remember? Tychicus. And who was Tychicus with who went from Rome to Colossae to bring this letter? Onesimus. And who was Onesimus? The slave. He's the one that got saved in the prison cell with Paul in Rome. And Paul sends Onesimus back to Colossae because who's there? His slave owner. His name is Philemon. There's a book about him in the Bible. Can you imagine him sitting there going, oh, okay. My slave is back. We're one in Christ. That's radical. To see pastors from Russia, to see pastors from Ukraine praying together for their country, for their people, that's unity around the gospel. Christ is all and in all. All those in the new creation have Christ dwelling within them, and he is enough. Paul's intention is not to deny ethnicity. Paul's intention is not to deny cultural and social differences. Obviously, they are, and we should celebrate them. But the gospel, not the government, removes barriers from the heart. The goal of the gospel is to live out the reconciled life in Christ. The government, no government will ever do it. And that's why CRT, critical race theory, we hear so much about, will not change the human heart. There are, we know there are, we, we, listen, we're not stupid. We know there have been injustices in our country, and it's okay to recognize them. But tribalism is antithetical to the gospel. At the heart of the critical race theory in today is the propaganda that trains all of us to see everyone through the lens of race. Antithetical to the gospel. To view each other either as the oppressed or the oppressor contradictory to the gospel the gospel reconciles our job is to live the truth out of the gospel in our hearts and in our churches the goal of the gospel is to bring healing and to bring reconciliation their agenda is to erase and dismantle every system that brought about all kinds of inequality now when again we're not saying there was none but we're saying in the gospel is where you will find the truth of unity we're centered on worshiping together, recognizing that no matter where you come from, no matter what nation, tribe, or tongue you come from, we are one in Christ. That's the point. Our diversity doesn't automatically disappear. It just doesn't matter anymore for eternity. We can't look, we're not called to look through ethnicity differences, economic differences, cultural differences. They're irrelevant when it comes to the gospel. The same Jesus who died for me died for you, raised me from the grave and raised you from the grave, from the dead life, and enables us to live as new men who dwell both Greek and Jew, educated, barbarian, slave, master, both male and female. Christ is all and in all. That's the church. That's the unity of the gospel. That's where we and our lens must be focused on, the truth of eternity with Jesus. Amen? Let me read to you a passage as the band comes up. I put it up on the screen as well. You guys are doing a great job. 
Revelation chapter 5. If you have any questions about this, right here. Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. And they sang a new song. Worthy are you, that's Jesus, to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you, Lord Jesus, were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. From where? Every tribe, language, and people, and nations. Should we fight against injustices? Absolutely. Should we fight against the oppression of people groups? Absolutely. But let's keep the lens the gospel. Let's keep the lens the gospel. We are one in Christ. We are one in Christ. We are one in Christ. And we have to, if we have to fight for it, we fight for it. But let's not get caught up in things that aren't important when it comes to the gospel. Amen? Father, thank you that we can consider ourselves dead to the old man, the old woman. Lord, we thank you that we have been crucified with Christ. Our body, our flesh, that sinful part of us has been set free. Help us by the power of your spirit to see our new identity, that we may live in the truth of your word and who we are accepted, loved, and forgiven. And help us, God, to put on the new self. And help us, Lord, to know of the fullness we have in Christ. And may your people, your church, be the ones to lead the way, pointing to the gospel and the unity we have around the truth that we have all sinned and fall short of the glory, of your glory, and through the gospel, we have been forgiven, reconciled to you and to one another. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.